We hear a lot about racism online in the news, as overt racial attacks, anti-Semitism and hate speech are on the rise. And over the last few years, we've become a lot more aware of structural racism, the kind based on a colonial hierarchy that's never really been addressed. Uh, there is, however, one area where racism rears its ugly head that hasn't been discussed a whole lot to this point, and that's the area we're going to talk about today. My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. One place where racism hasn't been extensively discussed, studied, and talked about is in intimate partner settings, when racial microaggressions or outright flagrant racial language is used between two people who ostensibly love one another. This is what we're going to talk about today, as we get into a study that's ongoing at Laval University. Be sure to check the show notes if any of this applies to you. There are opportunities, especially for cisgendered, gay, and heterosexual men, to participate in this focus group. Now let's head to Laval University in Quebec City to meet our expert. My name is Maya Yampolsky, and I'm an associate professor at Université Laval in Quebec City. And my research area is intimate racism and also just generally multicultural identity, intercultural relationships and racism and other issues. Well, terrific. And that's what we want to talk to you about today. Uh, you've just come out with a study called Intimate Racism from One's Partner in Young Intercultural Couples. Yes. And I'm hoping we could just start with the title of the study because I don't think a lot of us necessarily associate racism and culture in the same way. So why intercultural couples and not interracial couples? Ah, okay. So because that was a mixed, a mixed bag of things, but usually because if we talk about interracial, then we don't necessarily get into the cultural meaning systems. And I usually tend to speak in terms of like cultural, just because it, it can encompass meaning systems, perspectives and racialization. Um, but we did look at it specifically interracial couples, but a lot of the stuff that was coming up wasn't just like your skin color. Like it, it was, it was about like your way of doing things is wrong or weird. So that right. goes to the culture stuff too. Um, and also I was looking at culture because that's usually the point of contact between people that I find the most interesting, but it, uh, it could include racialization and that's what we looked at. Uh, in the study. Right. And some of the examples of that that you give in this study are, you know, the habit of sitting on the floor to eat your meal mm -hmm. uh, with your fingers and that sort yes. of thing. That's a cultural thing. And uh, that's something that may not be familiar to the other person in the company. Exactly. Exactly. So there's the part that like comes from the stereotyping and the, the way that we represent minority groups um, through the racialization. But there's other parts that are just to do with like there's different cultural practices. And then when you find out about it, it's like, Ugh. and so there's the racism that comes from that. So I wanted to kind of be able to highlight that racism is, is a big thing. It's not just, you know, like the skin color that we grew right. up learning, like don't judge people based on their skin color. It's like, actually it's huge and it's complicated and it touches on all parts of, of where we come from, who we are and who people see us to be. So. And, and it is complicated and it is a huge issue. And it's something that we've been talking about a little bit and more so we've been talking about it in the workplace, things like microaggressions, uh, yeah. you know, instances where somebody is in fact being racist and they know it, or maybe they don't even realize yeah. that they're doing yeah. it. And you're talking about the same thing within the couple dynamic. Yeah. And uh, so are, are we coming from the same place when we're talking about those two different things, or is it different in an intimate couple se setting? 
A little bit of both. Um, so, like, we developed the concept of intimate racism to highlight the fact that it can happen from people that are closest to us, so friends, family, lovers, um, relationship partners. And I started by looking at the partnership because we often think, like, oh, but I love this person and I, I'm attracted to them, so how could this even happen? As opposed to just, you know, somebody that I don't care about in, in the street kind of thing. But we brought this up because like there's two parts. One is that as it, it comes in employment or any other sector, it will come in in the intimate spheres too. So we can't expect that intimacy is somehow exceptional to everything else that happens around us and all our different other roles and different parts of our life. So I wanted to shine the light on that. But the other part is that there's certain things that are more likely to come up in intimacy that we don't talk about. So while in the employment sphere, we can have people talking about you know, sexual harassment, but they don't talk as much about things like racial sexual fetishization and things like stereotypes about how people do relationships or relationship practices and morals. And that's some of the stuff that comes up in our work on intimate racism is that we're seeing that, you know, you might encounter sexual fetishization outside. It's not impossible, but it's more that because you're involved and intimately involved with another person, then they're more likely to have a chance that these things will come up. Um, that maybe even the basis of the attraction was sexual fetishization and racial fetishization in the first place. And also other parts, like one of the participants talked about how their partner stereotyped them and thought that like all Jamaican men were unfaithful. And so like things like that, that won't really come up in the work sphere, but they will come up in the intimate sphere. Right. And I'm wondering if if you've gone into, and I, I know this isn't in the study, but I you have studied this. Where does a lot of that fetishization come from? I, oh, man. Is it, you know, is yeah. it just pop culture in general? Is it porn? I mean, yeah, is it yeah. everything? So it, you'll find it now in pop culture, in porn, and all these things, but the roots go way back into colonization. So the way that we, the, you know, the whole like race science was created, where there was this racial hierarchy to justify colonization and colonial violence. So the folks that were constructed as white were at the top of of being human and the epitome of goodness. And then everybody below um, were non-white. So people of color who are South Asian, East Asian, Black, Indigenous, and often Black and Indigenous were at the bottom of the hierarchy. But with that came very specific stereotypes because on one hand, everybody was dehumanized and treated as objects to consume, both for their labor, so let's say slavery, but also for their bodies in terms of sex. So that would come in with like colonial rape. So that was just deeply embedded in it. And each group had different stereotypes. So you have, uh, and these are disgusting stereotypes just that I'm going to share because it's, <laughs> it's not pleasant to hear, but it's necessary. So the right. stereotypes against people who are black or people who are indigenous were often like the term hot-blooded, like feral, um, ferocious, and aggressive sexually. For East Asian and South Asian, it was like submissive, demure. But for both, it was always that they were available. They always were, were wanting and hypersexualized. And that meant that we can breach consent because if they want it, then we're justified in taking. So these things come up in porn, you see them all the time. And in pop culture too, with like how people are portrayed as attractive or unattractive usually follows these stereotypes. I think uh, Sofia Vergara, like her character in that, in that TV show, like as the spicy Latina, like so all these stereotypes come up in pop culture. And that's what we're bathing in. So if we grow up with these stereotypes, then we just project them onto people just because they're racialized. So. Right. And 
that sort of fetishization, right? I mean, if that is one of the reasons for the attraction in the first place, and then the couple becomes a couple and, you know, over the years, is, is that sort of related to a power dynamic in the couple in the sense that there is that hierarchy that then is maintained in a couple setting as yes. well as, right, from a vestige of colonial uh, rule? Yes. For sure. And if we're not actively looking at our own stereotypes and what we've internalized and undoing them, and we're just imposing them in the in the group, or like in the, not in the group, but in the couple, in the relationship, then of course it leads to like a, a power dynamic, because then it's about like, I am dehumanizing you, I am consuming you, you are there to fulfill my fantasies and my sexual desires. Instead of, we are mutually engaging, we are mutually desiring, we are mutually coming to know each other for who we are, with all of our backgrounds, but like, for who you are positioned relative to your backgrounds and not just like projecting the fantasy that I that I wish upon you. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, yeah, that's got to be a, a difficult situation to be in uh, when yes. the person that you love, uh, right, is treating you in this way or is uh, thinking of you in this way. Yes. I'm wondering how it gets from the point where you meet and you decide you really like each other to the point where you get married, have a long-term relationship or that right. sort of thing. I mean, why is it not cut off earlier if these things are taking place in that relationship? Yes. Okay. That's a really good question. So just so you know, for this study that was published, it, we didn't have like, one, they're all younger. So we don't have the kind of like lifelong partnership trajectory that we're looking to do in the future. For some of the studies that we're, we're running now, I'm running focus groups that we just finished. So we have the data that we're in coding and analysis state. But for that, like we have folks who had been with their partner for some time, like for maybe even a couple of several years. And then it was, you know, it ended in no small part because of the intimate racism that manifested in the relationship. And a lot of times it's a complicated basket of things because, you know, people fall in love and, you know, they, they're invested in each other. They don't want to think badly of each other and they want to make things work. And at the same time, they're being harmed and they're being hurt by the person that they care about the most and they, they want things to be better until they realize that, you know, for this and potentially also other reasons that were at play, that it doesn't work. So there's, there's this sense of like shame that can come over the person. Like I should have known, I should have realized earlier, or I should have realized that the pattern wasn't changing and it was, it took me so long. Um, there's also like, sometimes there's another part of it that's internalized racism. So when we're growing up as racialized minorities, we're often depicted as less beautiful, less attractive, less ideal. And so when somebody does pay attention to us in what seems to be a positive attraction way, it's like, oh, you value me and I'm not devalued. But then we realize later, like, wait a minute, that was creepy. So then right. that, like, then it's like, oh no. Like, so, so it's kind of like, it's revealed later. Or the kind of like fascination at difference, which is normal. It's normal as humans to be curious and want to know and be like, ooh, different, cool. But then the fascination with difference is revealed later to be more like exoticism and like objectifying. And then it's like, oh, ah, that's gross. So then people feel really violated, essentially. It's really disgusting and they feel disgusting in their own body and with the person and it, and it can eat away at the, at the connection. Right. And I, 
of all the people you interviewed, right, you interviewed many, many young uh, intercultural couples. Were any of them in a situation where they didn't experience this, right? Is it possible uh, okay. to have yes. a relationship like this where this doesn't occur? I mean, we For all sure. have prejudices. We all have oh, our prejudices yeah. that we bring into a relationship, a workplace, yeah. whatever, right? Yes, for sure. So this study was, you know, open-ended question online, specifically asking for the stories of racism, stereotypes, prejudice, discrimination that they've experienced from a partner. So it's not a, a study of how prevalent is it. That was, this is really just, what does this even look like? Like, we know that there's, there's hints that something like this exists, but nobody's actually looked at it directly. So I wanted to look at it directly by asking about it instead of just, you know, assuming that it exists one way or another. I wanted to see, like, what shape does it take? So in asking that, we were specifically asking for those experiences. So we don't know exactly how prevalent it is amongst intercultural couples, but we know that it's not defining for all intercultural couples, for sure. And from my previous research with intercultural couples and identity and satisfaction, a lot of couples are going through something that's more blissful in their sharing. (laughs) So they're not necessarily, you know, they might be confronted with their own stereotypes, but they're not projecting it onto their partner. And instead they're learning about the, you know, how big the world is and what they didn't realize and confronting their own ethnocentrism and expanding the self. So there's a work that I just uh, co-authored with my colleague, Alexandria West, where she was showing that intercultural couples, um, engaging in each other's cultural group, like, you know, sharing their culture with their partner tend to experience more self-expansion, like a feeling of like, oh, wow, like life is big. I, my, who I am is bigger than just, you know, like my own small group and they identify more with human. They find that there's more well-being, greater relationship satisfaction. So there's the other side of this, which isn't like, it's all doom and gloom. Um, and that we're right. Cultural couples are doomed to experience racism. It's really just that, like, instead of keeping things hush-hush and never addressing the thing that could happen, then instead I wanted to look at this thing that does happen because if it's happening, there has to be a way to address it and to heal from it or to to protect oneself from it. So that's what I want right. to Yeah, because, I mean, we're always saying, and we hear it all the time, but you have to interact with people from other cultural groups. You have to expand your own, you know, social circle. You have to experience, uh, you know, other cultures in order to, you know, better understand the world. And it would be a terrible message to say, well, except in a relationship. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The final frontier. Like, we just, (laughs) we never go there. No, it's really like, Relationships are one of the most precious forms of, of contact that we have because they're so intimate, because they're so special, because we trust each other, we build our own, you know, inside jokes, our stories together, there's a merging and a unity that happens. It's very beautiful. I think what I really wanted to pitch with this is not don't do it, but really more like do it in a way that is ethical, that honors your partner. Don't take it for granted that just because you love somebody that means that you don't have stereotypes or that we didn't grow up with racism around us. And so, of course, we didn't absorb it. It's like we absorb things that we don't want to absorb and they'll come out if we're not aware of them. So I want people to be aware of them so that we're doing it right instead of just don't do it. Don't like hands off. Yes. And and we're having this discussion at a time where, you know, racism, overt public racism is more rampant than I think I've ever seen it before. Anti-Semitism and, Uh you know, the rest of it. And one of the things that I see very often is somebody who says, well, I can't be racist because I have a black partner or, you know, my (laughs) friend is indigenous or whatever. Right. And it, it almost feels like 
they've chosen that partner so that they can then get that blanket pass and never have to think about it ever again, right? Exactly. Is something that you encountered? Yes, this is something that came up in this data set too, where like a lot of the participants were talking about being tokened this way, where it's like my partner said that racism is over because she's dating me. And it's like, that's not how it works. Like it's... Right. <laughs> <laughs> and in the interviews that I've conducted since, too, people have talked about that experience where it's like, uh, my partner said that like, you know, like he treated me like now he has cred or now he has access to being black because he's dating this me who is black. And it's like, that's not, that's really not how it works. Like we can't just, you know, find a loophole around addressing racism by befriending somebody like, and then that poor person that you've befriended for that purpose, right. like, they, they are not benefiting the way that, that you would like. So it's really something to consider that like, we can't just shield ourselves with our, you know, the people around us who are racialized. Like they are the most vulnerable in our population for racism, for racial oppression, and we can't just, you know, think like, ah, I don't have to deal with it. Like I'm fine. I've I've found the way out. It's like no, you've actually you've taken on a greater responsibility in ensuring that you're treating the person who is kind, who is you know dear to you as as in high regard as possible. You said in the release that you have experienced some of this yourself uh, in your own life. And I, I believe you are Hindu and Jewish. Am yes. I right? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> right? And, uh, you have a good memory. <laughs> it's only been a couple of years since we spoke and you remain my favorite guest. So, uh, you know. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you are comfortable sharing like, an example from your own life. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely a vulnerable share. But I had, um, I will, unfortunately, it happened on more than one occasion. So I've had several partners make comments. One of them used to refer to me as a coconut. I don't know if you've heard this. It's a slur no. that's usually, so there's slurs for people who are second gen or mixed heritage, um, usually. And it's like a coconut is for like, you're brown on the outside, but white on the inside. So there's mm. other terms like Oreo, like you're black. I've heard Oreo, banana. yeah. Yeah, so right. coconut, Oreo, banana. These are the, the choice terms that people have decided to come up with as a way of undermining or, or denying our identity. So like in telling me like, you're not really Indian, it's, it's telling me that I don't belong to my own group, that I don't count, I'm not legitimate. And so a lot of other people have talked about this experience and I shared this with my friend and you know, they were like, me too. And I was like, well, then how come nobody's talking about this? How come, like, what, what's going on? So somebody called me a coconut. I had somebody else. Essentially, there's other things where it's like, people were fetishizing me as like, oh, I've never been with an Indian girl. And I was like, oh, this is gross. Like, it just feels very violating. There's been other incidents too, where people were maybe not directed at me, but at other groups. So like, like touting the Confederate flag and saying like, no, no, it's just because I like that, that old TV show or this band that used to like have the, the flag. And that's what it means to me. And it's like, it's still a symbol of hate. So we should probably, uh, and like, you know, in the process of saying like, you know what this is though, like, and then telling them and making sure that they understood. And then them still saying like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. So it's like, okay, then I don't feel safe here. If right. you're okay with just minimizing um, racism and hatred. So there have been tons of incidents, unfortunately. And I was thinking like, it's it's probably not just me. And it came up in, in interviews I was doing back in the day, like 10 years ago during my doctorate, people were talking about this. And I was like, this is a thing. This is a thing that nobody's talking about. But finally, people are bringing it up like bit by bit and like in places where we feel safe talking about it. 
Right. And now you're doing that research and you're delving deep into it. And even Leonard Skinner has stopped using the Confederate flag exactly. because they get it, right? I mean, right. Exactly. <laughs> Free bird. <laughs> so in doing this, is there something that surprised you? Did you learn something that you really didn't expect to learn from this? And I know you haven't finished, you know, putting all the data together and all that, but, yeah. uh, you know, what's really stood out to you in this study? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's some things that we expected, like, like we knew going in, we'd, we'd encounter things like sexual fetishization and microaggressions. I think some of the stuff that uh, surprised me and my, and my co my colleagues were the fact that like explicit racism is still like is very much showing up in the relationship. I think we expected that we'd encounter more of the microaggressions, the, the subtle, the non, the unconscious stuff. And we did, that was the most of it, but there were still people using the N-word against their partner or somebody uh, like, and thinking like, it's fine, we're together, I can say this. And it's like, no, you can't. Like, that's, that's the opposite right. of like, how this works. Um, or like people saying, there was one person who commented on, um, on a participant who is from Iran and like with all the, the hardship that's not even currently, this is uh, like, I God, I hope that's not happening, but like from what was happening at the time in Iran that like our culture deserves this, like they're horrible. And it's like, wow, okay, that's, uh, that's deeply bigoted. That's not even trying to hide it. It's, it's just being openly hateful. So it was, that was, I think, probably shocking when we were encountering this is like, people really have chutzpah, I guess, is a way of putting it. Like, where they somehow, like, permitted themselves to, to be so explicitly racist to their partner um, instead of it just being microaggressions. I feel like that's, that's something that... Uh, I almost feel like that's one of those things where a cultural issue stands in for a racial one where you can be bigoted against that culture, but not be racist. So you, and Iran, I think is a very good example where right now there are all these women in the streets taking yeah. up their jobs, cutting their hair, but getting yes. back against an oppressive regime that is, yes. you know, cracking down with the morality police and all this. Oh, right. Yes. And the response to that very often takes the shape of, well, that culture Yes. And really, I think the subtext is, well, those people, right? Yes, exactly. And it's rife with Islamophobia. And it's, it like paints everybody with a broad brush instead of saying like, wow, an oppressive regime is really a bad thing compared to a religion and people's own individual and collective orientations towards that religion is totally different from an oppressive regime that's harming people. So... And also that brings up like saviorism and all sorts of other things where it's like, well, we have to civilize them and it's, it's right. ugly. So these things were coming up in the relationships um, too, where people were taking that position and using, as you said, like the, the cultural um, events, experiences, situations to justify their own biases. Um, that's one of the parts in, when we were defining racism, it's like it goes into cultural racism. So there's a way of like, essentializing people and saying like, you're black, therefore this, you're indigenous, therefore this. But there's also ways of saying like, well, culturally, there's these practices, which are often just these stereotypes in people's head and not actually true, or they are the misunderstandings of what they've seen or what they, they, they imagine. And then that comes out. So it's like, it's not just like this, I'm not judging you based on your skin color. It's like, if you're judging the culture um, as a whole, and you're judging the meaning systems without knowing them. And you're not looking at the nuance and you're not seeing how I, as an individual, as a partner, am positioned 
vis-a-vis -vis all of this going on and all this complexity, then they're essentially like erasing the partner from the from the whole thing. They're just looking at like, well, here's a stereotype and it's on you now. And the partner is the one left perceiving this from the person that they love and want to feel the most safe with. I'm thinking too that, I don't know if you would have gleaned this uh, from your study, right? But there's another hierarchical dynamic in most relationships, certainly yeah. cisgendered heterosexual relationships, yeah. where, you know, there is a patriarchal uh, system uh, under which we live, right? Did you find that there was a difference between whether the male in the relationship was racialized or the female yeah. or people of other genders? Uh, did you study, yeah. you know, mixed mm -hmm. gender couples as well? Yes. So for this study that was just published, it was mostly cisgendered women um, and cisgendered men with a couple people who are non-binary or gender non-conforming. Um, and we didn't necessarily get the chance to look at intersectionality there because there wasn't as much um, like it was really, as I said, an open-ended question online so that like we were like just testing the waters and seeing what was out there. And then we got this slew of responses like, wow, okay, we're on to something. We're in the right like direction. So we didn't get to go deeper, but I can speak to what I'm doing now, which is those focus groups where we did focus groups with people who identified as women, men, and as non-binary. And we are seeing these different intersections between sexuality, between gender that, that come up. So a lot of the sexual stereotypes are different towards men and women where like let's say the the idea of like penis size and vagina tightness comes up the idea of like submissiveness for the women aggressiveness for the men there were stereotypes against muslim men and arab men that they would be you know aggressive and non-feminist and like misogynistic right when that was the case there were stereotypes against um, people who are queer as though like and from their partners where it's like oh we're queer so we we know oppression so we don't need to like there's we don't need to talk about racism but it's like no we do because in our community people have racism so there are different issues that came up for each community and for each gender that were really specific and we're still in the analysis of that but we can see, see that like clearly it's not just like affecting one gender or the other it's affecting everybody but with different flavors because of the way that gender intersects with race and with ethnicity and culture. For sure. Now, it seems like you have a lot of jumping off points for further study uh, yeah. starting here, right? Uh, I'm wondering, like, what's next? What's the next thing you're going to look at? And uh, and where do you go from here? Yeah. So, as you know, research is long. <laughs> it's <laughs> many steps. But, I, you know, I've been talking already about these focus groups. So that will be the next the next one that's underway. So we're going even deeper into intimate racism from the partner with these focus groups, taking into account uh, intersectional experiences with gender. Um, after that, um, my graduate student, who's also uh, the co-author on this paper, Alessandra Rossini, she's um, taking the lead in developing a questionnaire, like a measure to tap into like the frequency, like how prevalent is this thing? How often are people experiencing this in their intercultural couples? And it's based on what people have already been saying in the qualitative work. So it's going to be a lot more sound and robust and more true to life than if it was just like, I have an idea based on a theory, I'm going to write it down. So we're checking with both theory, like microaggressions framework, and with what people said concretely to be able to bring this to life into a measure. And ultimately, we're also going to be doing things like, um, right now, actually, we're going to do some experiments and priming. Uh, so that's not, thankfully, not actually putting people in situations where they're experiencing right. this thing, but really just imagining that this is happening. And then how do you feel about that to kind of get a sense of, you know, the, the causal relationship because people self-reporting is super valuable, but it doesn't say like, 
is this the thing that starts something else? Are there other factors? And ultimately, I want to do longitudinal work to see like, what does this look like over time? Like you get couples, let's say earlier in their in their relationship and follow them for a year, maybe two, depending on funding. <laughs> and then see see what comes out like see like you know like with the experience of intimate racism how does this unfold like do people get to actually repair um do the relationships dissolve is this the causal factor and then what is the thing that is making people more likely to commit intimate racism is it the fact that they haven't learned their history of you know like that canada has had slavery quebec has had slavery like all these things that we didn't know growing up because it's been omitted. And then of course, then the stereotypes are still there. So looking at things that could, you know, help to prevent um, it from being there in the first place, and then being able to ultimately create interventions, um, public education, and all these things. Essentially, I wanted to stop, I wanted to end. And so this is a very long road <laughs> to making sure that we know enough about it, the hows, the whys, the wheres, um, to be able to, to stop it. Uh, I think you're right. I think that there's definitely, I mean, there's so much prevention that can be done that isn't being done, <laughs> right? I mean, I remember going to high school and taking history class and yeah. our Canadian history class was basically, here's how the three branches of government function. <laughs> oh, yes. And we also used to have Indigenous people who used every part of the buffalo and made canoes out of birch right. That's <laughs> it. We're done. We're good, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. There's an awful lot that we're not actually learning about what our history really right. is and, and, right. and how that shapes today. Right. So yes. I think that, yeah, are you, you need to design a high school history class. That's, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. I want to collaborate. But <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, I'm thinking too, right. I mean, for the time being, like right now, right. We're not there. We haven't had this uh, history lesson that we need to have, right. There are a lot of yeah. resources where we can go and learn the history and yeah, many yeah. of us have. Right. Yeah. But I think that my worry, especially at this time and the way that our culture is currently sort of at each other's throats is that yeah. the people who wanted to learn that history, who needed to learn that history are two different groups, right? Mm. And the people who did seek that out and learn that and have progressed personally and, and yeah. uh, right, and, and in terms of knowledge, it's sort of preaching to the choir in a way, right? right? <laughs> right like, right. you know, everybody else has sort of become entrenched in the notion of never doing that and, yes. you know, never acknowledging anything, right? Yes. So I, I'm wondering, if you have any advice for people who are experiencing this right now, uh, yeah. microaggressions or even overt racism in a couple setting, yeah. you know, what can they do right now to alleviate this? Or do you just leave and find somebody who's better and, and right? <laughs> they're bigger fish in the sea. We just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, maybe that's it. Maybe you need to create a dating website, a, dating dating site. <laughs> a racism free dating site. <laughs> One that weeds out all those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a screening. No, so, I mean, okay, so I can't tell people what to do in their relationships because it, one of the things that did come up from this study and from the focus groups is just how, how it's, it's, love is very layered, you might experience harm in this way, and also love the person. Um, some people attributed it to like, ah, oh, it's just ignorance, it's okay, I want to keep, so it's, it's like, I, I don't want to go in and be like, leave them, but 
right. it does contribute to the dissolution of the relationship, or at least to doubting the relationship and feeling safe in the relationship. It is, it is a, a really harmful experience that people are talking about. And I think what I want people to know first is that they're not alone and it's not their fault. Um, it's not something to blame themselves for. Um, and also that it's normal to have complicated feelings about it when you love a person and they're hurting you. Um, and the other thing that I want people to know is that they don't have to stay in the relationship if they don't want to. And if they do want to, then hold yourself to high standards and expect that your partner can do the repair work and the accountability work. And if they don't, then that's, that's a big red flag, um, which isn't in this study, but it's something that uh, has, been, has been coming up and that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and the other part is that I think what's important is that we take a bit of a transformative justice lens and acknowledge the fact that we're all capable as humans of hurting somebody else. We don't want to, but we can, and often we have, and we've done, and we can do because we're humans and we make mistakes and we're embedded in bigger social structures that weren't of our own creation. So if we can also acknowledge and have compassion for ourselves and for the people that we've hurt, that like, oh, well, I did this thing, and be honest with ourselves about what we said, what it meant, and how it impacted the other person, then we can actually live a beautiful integrity moment of actually stepping up and healing and doing what's right. right. And also addressing collectively, why haven't we learned about our history? Where is this stereotype <laughs> coming from? Why does the porno scenario always have some dangerous black man and a white woman? You know, like, like really right. questioning these things that are in our society and asking for better instead of just saying like, well, that's how it is, or taking it for granted, like really stepping outside and seeing the strange and the familiar and taking action to change it. I think that's the biggest thing because then it won't trickle into our intimate spaces. Right. And I think too, that there's, I, I think that, and I'm no scientist, I haven't studied <laughs> this, I don't, right? but I do think that in intimate relationships, people are in a lot of ways unaware of how lingering hurt can be right yeah. and sometimes one well okay well we discussed it i got over it so i yeah. assume you also did and then yeah. you know 10 years later remember when you said that to me right <laughs> yeah okay, yeah you've been thinking about it for 10 years it hasn't gone away right yeah and i think that we all need to be a little more cognizant of the fact that it's not always resolved when you you think it is right Yes, exactly. That it's not just because like, I didn't think it was a big deal. So then you shouldn't think it's a big deal. It's really like, oh, I had no idea that that's what it was. And that shows my limitations, but also potentially my willingness to, to understand and to do better and to make right. We're working our way toward it, right? And uh, yes. <laughs> I, I want you to come back on this podcast when you're on the next uh, step in this uh, in this journey with the studies and so on. And then when we create our a racism free screener dating app and 10th grade uh, high school history Canadian I would love that it would be my pleasure <laughs> terrific well uh, we have like two minutes left so uh, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to, to mention here uh, yeah. Maybe some resources or if you're recruiting people for these focus groups yep. and uh, the rest of the study. Yeah. Oh, yes. So uh, shameless self-promotion. But like yeah. the, we are actually <laughs> looking for, for participants for focus groups, um, especially queer and men, uh, like people who are cisgendered uh, men to participate in focus groups. But this time on the intimate racism that comes from 
friends and family towards you or your partner while you were in an intercultural relationship. So that's what we're, one of the other projects that we're working on now related to this. Um, so if you're interested, contact me. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm also at Ulaval. Uh, you can find my, if you Google Maya Yapolsky, you'll find my, my professional contact. I also want to thank my co-authors. Alessandra Rossini is my doctoral student, and she and Justine Paget were the two coders who coded the entire data set. Um, they devoted so many hours to this. And Ivan Leanza, who's our qualitative expert, and <laughs> guided us through the whole um, analysis process beautifully. Um, and Richard Lalonde for, you know, being just the, the cool, uh, supportive, intergroup discrimination researcher that he is and, and enabling us to, like, do this research at York and, and uh, the participants and, and all those things. We all, like, I love our team. We did a great job. I'm really proud of what we did. <laughs> That's terrific. I, I like that we've closed this off with an Oscars acceptance speech. <laughs> to my mother and my father. <laughs> a huge thanks to Dr. Maya Yampolsky for joining me today on Mindful and to her team of researchers for continuing to do this work. We'll definitely be speaking to them again. Thank you also to you at home for tuning into this episode, which was written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bullman. It was edited and produced by Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. A new episode of Mindful is now published every second Thursday, so see you again in two weeks.